So, one of the main questions that I get from time to time as a pastor, and it doesn't matter whether it's somebody who's just starting out in their relationship with God or if it's somebody that's been a Christian like all their life, the question remains the same. What's next? Where do I go from here? What is my next step in my relationship with God? Some of us have had some pretty incredibly beautiful spiritual experiences. Like you could feel so close to God that you could just reach out and touch Him. And those are incredible moments. The problem is that when they're over, we say, you know, I just don't feel close to God anymore. What's next? And the issue is, I think, in the Christian life, it, that it's, it's an expectation that we're somehow supposed to maintain this spiritual high, this kind of emotional closeness, when in reality we can't. You can't sustain that kind of emotion and that kind of high day in and day out. So the question is, what do you do? How do you feel that? How do you stay close like that? And when we don't, we feel defeated. And we feel like God is just so far away. But what if? What if the secret to staying close to God is not found in the highs? What if the secret to staying close to God is in the everydays. It's in the mundane. What if staying close to God is just a matter of just doing what He asks us to do? Morning, y'all. Happy Sunday after Easter. Whatever that is. Today, I guess. Um, You know, out of the... uh, chaos of what feels that my life has been over the last few months, um, I wanted to just keep things real simple this morning and just kind of reflect on this question of what's next and how do we stay close to God by just, all I want to do this morning is really just tell you a story. And it's a story that comes out of the Old Testament book of 2 Kings chapter 5. And it tells a story about a guy named Naaman. And Naaman was a very powerful, wealthy military man, probably the most successful general of his day, leading his men to victory after victory against their enemies. And I would imagine that his life now is much like a General Schwarzkopf after Desert Storm was. I mean, he was just a celebrated war veteran that everybody knew, and because of that, he was a man of influence in his kingdom who was greatly respected by the king, and really, the whole country just adored this guy in this moment. So here was a man who had it all, power and influence and wealth, and really, for back then, fame. But there came a point where none of that made a hill of beans difference because Naaman had a problem. As he got out of bed one day, and I'm sure it was just like 
any other day. He was getting ready to go to work, and as he did, he catches a little glimpse of something in the mirror. And to his horror, on his body, he finds a spot. And we're not talking like a little simple pimple spot. This was a spot that would be the first symptoms of one of the most dreaded diseases of his day. And in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Armand. And he was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given great victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. It was the absolute worst thing that could have happened to this man of influence and power, because not only was he about to experience a very slow, painful, horrific death, he would become a social outcast before he died. He would literally go from the height of glory to being the most adored man in the entire nation to being a man that nobody would come near because of his disease. In many ways, uh, leprosy was probably even worse than AIDS is today. I mean, upon discovering the disease, you actually had to leave your home, your family, your town, and go out and live in what was called a leper colony, where all the other lepers would live from the area because it was a very, very highly contagious disease. And so if you're a leper and you're walking through downtown and you come across somebody on the street who's coming the other way, you literally have to cover your mouth and yell out, unclean, I'm unclean, so that everybody would know that you have this terrible disease and they could avoid you like the plague which is maybe where that phrase came from to begin with. And you would have to really live out the rest of your days in isolation so nobody would catch this horrific disease from you. Well, the word got out about Naaman's disease, and there was a young servant girl that worked in his house who had heard about this prophet. He was a prophet of God that she had heard that he was over in Israel and he could do incredibly miraculous things that really could only come from God. And so Naaman packed up his bags because he had no other options. He packed up his bags and he went to Israel in search of this prophet named Elisha, who was said to have these incredible healing powers. Well, after doing a little investigative work, he finds Elisha living out in the middle of nowhere. And Elisha, like his predecessor, Elijah, was kind of like a hippie prophet. They're kind of living off the land and out in the wilderness. You know, I'd imagine that he hadn't taken a bath or cut his hair in years and a little stanky guy. And I always picture old Elisha living in some kind of shack and it was all broken down, didn't have two pennies to rub together. And he's kind of like a scary dude or something. I don't know. But Naaman... He pulls up to Elisha's driveway in all of his glory, right? He's he's probably got with him his whole entourage of of servants and soldiers and horses and chariots, and they're all dolled up with 
ribbons and armor and feathers, whatever you do with feathers. And, and so they, they pull up in front of Elisha's house. Now, Elisha does something kind of strange. I mean, here is an incredibly prestigious man who is pulled up to his house, and it is obvious that Elisha is so not impressed with him because he doesn't even go out to greet him. He doesn't even go out and say hi. Instead, he sends his servant out to talk to him. And it's obvious that Elisha knows exactly why Naaman is there, because as his servant walks out the door, immediately the servant goes to Naaman and he says this. Look, Elisha says this. Go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you'll be cleansed. Hmm. Now, what you need to know in order to appreciate what Elisha has just told this man of prestige and honor through his prophet, through his servant, I mean, is that the Jordan River, more than any other river in the region, was the dirtiest, nastiest river in all of Israel. In fact, it makes the Fox River look like it's a sparkling spring or something. It was absolutely just gross. And so Naaman is like completely offended. Who does this guy think he is? Sending his servant out, not even coming to talk to me himself. Doesn't he know who I am? Naaman said, I figured he would like, you know, just kind of wave his hand over the spot and it would just cure me. But instead, he wants me to go into the dirtiest, nastiest river that I have ever seen and dip myself in it, not once, not twice, but seven times. What kind of nonsense is that? He could at least pick a river that was like halfway clean. So this very powerful, wealthy man does something incredibly distinguished. He throws a tantrum. Well, Naaman's servants come up and they try to settle him down a bit. And so in verse 13, they say, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have gone out and done it? How much more then if he tells you to do just this simple thing, to be washed and cleansed, that you should just do that? I mean, you know, they make a good point, don't they? It's like they say to Naaman, Hey, if the prophet would have told you to do something great, like go out and fight a lion with your bare hands and, and bring back his teeth, and then you'll be cured of your leprosy, wouldn't you go out and do that? And you go, oh, yeah, I'd do that. Or if the prophet would have said, all right, go out and find out, fight a hundred men all by yourself, stand in a field and just fight a hundred of them, and when you've killed the last one, then you'll be cured of your leprosy, wouldn't you go out and do that? Yeah, I would go out and do that. Well, then why not just do this thing? This thing is like, no big deal. Why not do this simple little thing? What have you got to lose? So Naaman finally agrees, and then in verse 14, it says, So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored, 
and became clean like that of a young boy. Hmm. It was a miracle. Really. I mean, it was miraculous, wasn't it? Now, here's my question. If Naaman was told to dip himself seven times in the Jordan River, which dip was it that cured him? Was it dip number seven? I mean, dip number seven, you have to admit, was a pretty amazing dip, right? Can you, can you imagine going down in the water with leprosy and then coming out with even better skin? It says like that of a young boy. Before the whole thing even started, he didn't have that good of skin. I'm pretty sure dip number seven was a pretty incredible dip. But what was before dip number seven? Dip number six. Could there have been a dip number seven without a dip number six? So which dip do you suppose was the most important dip? Hmm? When you think about it, I bet dip number one, I bet that was the worst dip. You know, that kind of first step into that gooey, nasty, mucky river. And as he steps, you could hear the sound of the mud, like just sucking his feet in as he walks into the muck and goo. You know what I'm saying? Dip number two, he's probably got wet leaves all over him, and he's probably just disgusted, just picking these wet leaves off of his body. He's just incensed. Dip number three, dirt's running all down his face. You just go here and go, because the mud just like is splattering out there, and the, it's all stanky and nasty. And Dip number four, I just see something dead floating by. (laughs) Maybe on dip number five, maybe nothing happens. Maybe he just says, you know what? I am so sick of this. I'm a grown man, and there is nothing happening here. Do I really need to go through this humiliation in order to do this thing for this prophet? So maybe he gets all the way to like, Dip number six, and he goes, I'm bailing. This is stupid. Nothing's happening. I'm getting out of here. And his men go, no, 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 go on. Finish what you started, and then you can go complain. So he says, well, I might as well finish it, right? And then, then comes dip number seven. And I can almost see him, like, coming up out of the water, and he's covered with mud, and he goes, see? Nothing's happening. Nothing happened here. I'm not cured. And he's ticked and he's walking out of the water. And you could just see his soldiers going, look, look. And he's like, what? And he looks down and he sees that he is completely cleansed of his leprosy. Completely healed. It's a great story, isn't it? But it strikes me that this story is a metaphor for the Christian life. One dip 
really, really impressive. And the rest of them, eh, pretty uneventful. But even while they may be underwhelming, there are still necessary steps in order to get to the seventh dip. In the Christian life, some days are like the seventh dip. Especially when we first discover our faith, our relationship with God, we give our life to Jesus, and incredible things are happening. You know? I don't know if you remember that. If that's you, you know, you felt so close to God that you could almost reach out and touch Him. Everything's going your way. Miracles are happening. You're seeing God in everything. But the truth is, after that, from that point forward, most of the time, life's really just like dips one through six. Pretty uneventful. Nothing really exciting happening, and if something does happen, there's like no real wow factor attached to it. In the Bible, we read a lot about the seventh dips of a lot of people, don't we? I mean, take a guy like Moses, for example. You just want to have a life like Moses. I mean, this guy was incredible. He led the children of Israel out of slavery, parts the, you know, lifts up his thing, parts the Red Sea, everybody's walking over on dry land, and then all of a sudden the water comes back, wipes out an entire army, he goes up on a mountain, receives the Ten Commandments, lightning's flying out of the sky to, like, do these tablet things, or at least that's what happened in the movie with Charlton and Heston. And, you know, there's just, like, chapter after chapter of the Bible telling these incredible stories about this guy's life, right? I mean, what a seventh dip this guy had. But do you ever think about the 40 years that he spent in the wilderness before all of that happened? There's just a couple short sentences about that. I mean, all this incredible stuff happened in a short period of time, but the 40 years that he spent out in the wilderness, there's just like, just a blip on the screen about that. Can you imagine what the Bible would say if they recorded the events of the life of Moses during that time? It'd be like this. These are the events of the life of Moses the shepherd living out in the wilderness. Day one, Moses tends his sheep. Day two, Moses tending sheep. Day three, Moses still tending sheep. Day four, maybe he's just so bored at this point, he's singing to the sheep. We don't read about any of that, do we? We don't read about the daily monotony of the day in and the day out to to lead up to this incredible thing that happened into this life. But when that time came, what a seventh dip he had. Some of us at times, I think, get the wrong impression of what it means to be a Christian. Because we think that every day is supposed to be like this seventh dip. You know? Where every day we just feel it. While still others of us, we don't really quite get that there really is like a seventh dip still out there for us. And so we go through our lives bored with no hope, no 
direction, thinking that there really is nothing more. Either way, our expectations are really off. You see, dips one through six, that's about us being faithful to God. Dips one through six, that's what the Bible describes as being obedient. And the Bible says to obey is better than sacrifice. To just obey God day in and day out is way better than like throwing yourself in front of somebody and sacrificing yourself and for saving somebody else's life. The day in and day out monotony of obeying God is better than the big it's saying. The next step in our Christian life for most of us is this. We just keep doing what God asks us to do. And sometimes there's a seventh dip. Most of the time there's not. But in the meantime, we just keep doing what God asks us to do. There are times when things don't go like I want. And I am sure not feeling close to God. There are times when I am standing knee deep in mud and I feel like, Something dead just floated by. But I just keep on doing what God asked me to do. That's not to say we don't make mistakes or get off track at times, because we all do. It's just that when we mess up, we pick the leaves off, get ourselves back on track, and just keep pressing forward down the narrow path that leads to Jesus. If you think about it, we're a little like Naaman, thinking that just that day in and day out obedience thing is just a little mundane, you know? But how many of us would, if, if God were to yell down and, and God were to show his face and he were to yell down out of heaven and say, you, you in the salmon shirt in the back. You want to have an abundant life? You want to have a great life? And you're like, yeah, I do. He's like, okay, well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a canoe, and I want you to take the canoe all the way across Lake Michigan. And when you get to the other shore, I want you to run 100 miles. And when you get to the 100-mile mark, you're going to go to a forest. And when you get into the forest, you're going to look for a magic coin. And when you find the magic coin, you're going to turn around three times, and boom, your life's going to be made. You'd do that, wouldn't you? I mean, if you saw God yelling at you that this is what you need to do to have this like great life, you'd be in that canoe by sundown. Absolutely. But because it's something so simple as just to live your life day in, day out, being just faithful to God, we think it's too easy. I have to be honest with you, sometimes when I see the seventh dip in other people's lives, I get a little jealous, you know? 
It's like, God, I'd like to have a bigger share of those seven dips in my life. I'd like to have a little bit of wow factor here going on right here. But it doesn't happen that way. Most of the time, I'm just picking wet leaves off of my body with like mud running down my face and this stinky water and just... But I do know this. If this next week isn't so seventh dipish, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to keep doing what God asked me to do. Dips one through six is all about us being faithful to God. It's doing all the things that he asks us to do that are very clearly laid out for us. To do things like show up at church, read our Bible, pray, give, serve, all these mundane things that we do week in and week out, week in and week out. Dips one through six, that's about us being faithful to God. But dip seven, on the other hand, that's about God being faithful to us. And if there's one thing I've learned in my life is that God is faithful. And it's okay to expect that of God because he promises that if we're faithful to him, that we will have this abundant life. The problem is we get confused about what an abundant life looks like. Because we want it to be the big and the wow. We want God to bless us with a great life and success and prosperity. But what he's talking about an abundant life? He's talking about a simple life. A life where we just feel freed up to stand in his grace. A life where he gives us the strength when it feels like we just can't go on. And he gives us a, a peace when it feels like we're going to explode from the stress. And an abundant life is a life in Jesus where we have purpose and direction and like a sense of mission. And because of that, we feel fulfilled and thankful for what we have instead of so many who feel discontented all the time and bitter and never satisfied and always wanting more. We who have an abundant life can just live a life, a simple life, where we're just grateful for everything that we have. I was just in uh, Nicaragua this last week to help to dig a well for an entire village. And this entire village like gathers together around this drill rig that we're using to drill this well. And there is just this, such a sense of joy with these people because they're about to receive clean water for the first time in their lives. Because every day they go to a well that is contaminated and has disease in it and they crank this well and they put it into a bucket, a five-gallon bucket, they put it on their head and they walk a half a mile to their home so that they can have some water. So for them to have this hope that their children are not going to have to have disease anymore because they can have clean water, what a seventh dip for them. But to be honest with you, it was way more of a seven dip for me. 
like just to see these people gathered together in anticipation of this thing. Just to know that I could contribute to something in their lives half a world away. Just to see the look on their face was a seventh dip for me. It was amazing. The Christian life is an abundant life, not because of spectacular things happening to us every day. It's an abundant life because God is moving in our lives and he's showing us with such great clarity what's important and what's not. I can't always promise you an exciting life as a Christian. But what I can promise you is an abundant one. A life where you feel fulfilled. A life where you have joy and peace and a contentment that will change you forever. A life that will lead you down the road, this narrow path, that one day we will achieve this final dip that brings us into the presence of God in a way that we could never, ever imagine. But you know what I'm going to do in the meantime? I'm just going to keep doing what God asked me to do. Just keep 